such a sweet and very profound depth in the hall right now. It feels quite sacrilegious to speak. it feels more beneficial to uh, rest into that depth, then uh, please do your best to do that. And I'll do my best to speak from that silence and into that silence, but uh, no guarantees. So last night, Nathan was um, speaking about the elusiveness of, of the sense of self that we um, hang out with in life. And he was speaking about the the seeing, you know, the seeing that is possible for us to see the, the conditioned, the dependent nature of that sense of self, to see the role um, of fabrication, see the role of fabrication or concoction, two quite fun words, <laughs> plays in that. And he was speaking of that possibility that we have to, um, to use the conditioned, to use the conditions, which is what is available to us, in order to understand or to realize, that's often the language that's being used, to realize the unconditioned, which I, I actually really like that, to realize the unconditioned. And I'd like to, to explore that a little bit more this evening, that um, that possibility of, or that journey, we can say, of, of how, how we use the, that which is conditioned to realize the unconditioned. And kind of setting myself quite a tall order <laughs> right at the beginning. And so I'd like to, to, begin by, to begin this exploration by um, bringing back those three sticks. And we, don't, we don't necessarily need to put them here, but if you remember a few nights ago we had the three sticks. And so, and the three sticks really kind of um, as a, as an example of, of that sense of everything leans, you know, everything leans on something. And so if we look at, at the sense of self and we use that language, we can say, you know, the sense of self leans on the aggregates. That's often what happens, you know, it leans on the aggregates. The aggregates are what gives kind of substance to the sense of self. 
it's also interesting to see that we, you know, if we just kind of explore a little bit, we see that the aggregates also lean on each other. So, for example, would we be able to relate to the body without perception? For example. And would we be able to perceive without the body? You know, it's just a... Just one, you know, we can play with all of them in that way. You know, would, would perception exist without knowing, without consciousness? You know, all, all leaning on each other. And so, and each of the aggregates, remembering that that word, skanda in Pali, translated as aggregate, also means pile. Each aggregate is a pile in itself. And Nathan was kind of describing it in the body yesterday. And it's a pile made up of a pile of things which are also leaning on each other. You know, so the body with all its different, all the different things that make it up, all connected to each other and in, in mutuality with each other. And so... Similarly with the three sticks, you know, again, if we just use them as a simplification, they're leaning on each other, but each stick in itself is actually not just a stick. Yeah? Each stick in itself is made up of many things that are leaning on each other to create that phenomena of stick. Uh-huh. Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, he likes to say, um, you know, a stick is made up of non-stick elements. <laughs> and that goes for everything, you know, this, you know, this piece of paper is made up of non-paper elements, you know. This body is made up of non-body elements, you know, just that. And that really gives us a sense of actually how, you know, just that, that beautiful complexity of everything leaning and every single thing actually made up of you know many many different things and so those you know if when we look at that way you know if, you know i think we we all have enough mental capacity still despite six days of meditation to kind of imagine the sticks even if they're not here you know i think we can kind of conjure them up and actually see the whole world in those three sticks you know that every you know each of those sticks is a pile of things and each of the things in that pile are a pile of things and 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 so yeah I really I really really deeply love this teaching (laughs) and you know the fact that you know that kind of sentence that came up in my in my mind today, and I have no idea if it's original. Of course, that also is it leans. Um, is that the whole world leans? You know, the world is everything leans, and the whole world is leaning. The whole world is made up of this. In Dharma teachings, this this is called emptiness. We may have used this word uh, briefly. So this, this teaching, this way of looking, is, is, called, um, is called emptiness. And it's really the fundamental um, teaching of everything we've been exploring um, over the days here together. 
this teaching of emptiness. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting word. It's an interesting com- com- concept. You know, so ev- you know, everything is empty. And, you know, immediately the question is empty of what? You know, everything is empty. What does that actually mean? You know, empty of what? And so, and, and it's really important to, to ask that question, you know, empty of what, what is it, you know, because it can mean all kinds of things to us. And sometimes that sense of emptiness um, can, can kind of have a sense, if, if we don't get a real understanding of what that means, it can be quite bleak, you know, and feel quite um, kind of disenchanted and disenchanting. <laughs> so the emptiness is, emptiness of... Um, inherent existence, inherent existence. And what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, we need to keep asking these questions. So I actually, um, today I thought, okay, I'm actually going to look inherent up in the dictionary because, you know, I, I, I have a real sense of the word, as, as many of you do, but I thought, actually, let's see what the dictionary, I like language, though, let's see what the dictionary says. And the the Oxford I think it was the Oxford um, Dictionary definition of inherent was um, something inherent is something that exists in something (laughs) as a permanent or essential attribute. Permanent or essential attribute. So either it's it's permanent or it's it's got that quality of essence to it. And so when we say things are empty, you know, we say emptiness. It's empty of that, empty of that inherent existence, empty of um, being separate and being independent of everything else. Or if we go back to the sticks, it means that we're empty, we're not freestanding, essentially. You know, if everything leans, the empty of is empty of freestanding. You know, we don't stand on, nothing stands on its own independently and separate. Everything is in mutuality with many, many other things, not just one other thing, not just two other things, countless, countless other things because of that, you know, kind of the piles upon the piles upon the piles upon the piles of things. And so I, I, really, I really hope that, um, that you're getting a sense, that you're getting a feeling of the of the kind of real fullness and richness that there is in this emptiness, yeah. You know, if we go back to um, to Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, saying, you know, so this, um, you know, whatever this book is empty. It means that it's it's full of non-book elements. It's made up of non-book elements. It's full, yeah. It's full of life. And he has this, you know, some of you have probably come across um, this teaching of his, but, you know, he says, look at this piece of paper. And, and, you know, he says you can see the whole world in a piece of paper. You know, because it has the, the trees, it has the rain, it has the sun, it has the humans that, you know, cut the tree, processed the tree, transported the tree. It's got the fossil fuels. It's got the food that fed... <laughs> The humans, it's got the par- their parents that gave birth to them and all the generations behind. So that kind of, that's the fullness. That's 
the fullness and the richness and the abundance. So, so how does this relate to us? You know, I mean, again, probably we can get a sense, but how does it relate to us? How does it relate? Um, what does it mean for us? This this emptiness and and this fullness. And I think I've used this language before. Uh, for me, what comes up really strongly in response, what it means for us is, is, um, is possibility. It means possibility. It means um, this kind of really full, infinite range of possibility. If everything, you know, if everything leans, yeah, if everything is dynamic and in flux and in change, if we can see how our perception is dependent on the state of our mind, you know, as an example, that means that there's a lot of possibility in how we relate to life. It means that we can cultivate mind states, we can cultivate ways of looking that, that free and that support and nourish the goodness, yeah, the goodness in ourselves, the goodness in life. And I've been using this word wholesome or skillful, but today what really felt <laughs> appropriate for me was actually to speak about goodness. We nourish the goodness. And that over time we can make this goodness or we can make the wholesome, we can make that our default setting instead of the other, you know, less wholesome habits and tendencies that we have. We can make that the default setting. We can make that where our mind gravitates to. I think Nathan was, um, he used this story um, some, sometime early on from Sharon Salzberg. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it because it's one of my favorites. So, um Sharon Salzberg is, is one of the senior teachers in our tradition and um, she's particularly well known for really um, developing the metta practice in the West. So this story actually is, is, um, is uh, from her first ever metta retreat. So she'd never practiced it in Asia. But when they set up um, one of the first big meditation centers in, in the US, um, they, they, they started off by doing a retreat together, all the organizers. And she decided she was going to practice metta. She just had this real... And it was supposed to be a long retreat. She only had a week in the end because after a week, um, she got some news that meant she had to leave suddenly. And so that first week, because she thought she had a long time, she did the whole first week, she did metta for herself. And when she realized um, that she suddenly had to leave and stop the retreat, uh, one was she was sure that it had no effect on her whatsoever. Um, you know, she'd just been repeating these phrases and nothing had changed. And she also felt incredibly um, guilty that she'd only done it for herself and not for anyone else, especially since she thought it had no effect. And as she was packing to leave, as she was packing, she dropped um, a bottle and it smashed on the floor. And uh, it was kind of such a shocking jolt that she actually spoke out loud and, and said, you know, Sharon, you klutz. 
which was a known and very familiar voice. And then she heard herself say another sentence, which was, but I love you. Sharon, you klutz, but I love you. And it's such, you know, it's such a potent story of that ability, possibility that we can have of, of really transforming the mind through the practice, even when we're not aware that that's what's happening. You know, something needs to happen to kind of show it to us. Yeah? So even when we're not aware, and such a, you know, such a big shift in, in a week. Please don't, <laughs> please don't go breaking things mm-hmm. tomorrow um, or kind of having specific expectations <laughs> about, you know, how, how, the, how the, the seeds that we've been planting are going to show themselves. That was her particular example. And so, for me, it really feels this possibility, you know, this possibility to really... Um, change the default settings of the mind. Um, for me, it feels like such a worthwhile thing to give time and energy towards. And um, I'm guessing for, for all of you, it's felt somewhat worthwhile um, as you're still here. But it's a real... Um, yeah, it's really worth actually feeling into that and connecting to that sense of, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And it's really helpful to remember that our actions, choices, thoughts, speech, moment to moment, yeah, moment to moment, are also a cause and a condition in the unfolding of life. So, you know, everything leans and it's this complex network of causes and conditions that affects everything. But within that is our mind state, our actions, our choices. You know, and I think we really see it in practice, really see it in practice. And sometimes um, we actually need to, to turn the attention in order to really see it because it's kind of almost goes underneath the radar. You know, those moments when we come back to the meditation object, yeah? And we tend to really, what we're noticing is that we've been distracted again, <laughs> yeah? And now I'm coming back with whatever kind of uh, flavor that has. But that moment is a choice, yeah? It's an action and it conditions the unfolding of life. Conditions the unfolding of life. It's so precious, and, and so um, rare. And so, you know, even those moments that seem, you know, little choices, little things like that, that seem very minor and insignificant. You know, I'm just coming back to the breath. I'm just relaxing this tension. Or I'm just repeating to myself, reminding myself that this is not me. You know, whatever, whatever that is, They may seem minor and insignificant in the moment, but they facilitate, they are what facilitates great transformation over time. You know, only these moments, only these moments. 
And if we go back, you know, to this example I gave for my friend on the walk, and that moment of, you know, that little divergence from the sense of, you know, just tiredness, just shutting down and contraction. And then that slight openness to, well, what, you know, what if I let go into the earth? What if I become the earth? And then the whole day changing, and then from that, a sense of possibility that wasn't there before appearing. You know, that this is possible, that this is possible. And so the, the practice, you know, the practice that we're engaging in here, and I kind of want to highlight, you know, what does it actually do? What is it that we're actually doing? How does it actually work? Where does it lead? And so, you know, one thing it does is that it increases calmness. Yeah, increases calmness and steadiness of mind, which allows us to see more clearly. Yeah, that's one thing that happens through the practice. The second thing that happens is that it develops flexibility and pliability of mind. Yeah, flexibility and pliability of mind. So that our mind isn't limited by our conditioned patterns and habits. It's not limited by, you know, the way we've related to things until now. It's less rigid. And we have a much more, much wider um, array of options. Yeah, we can. We've got much more choice, much more, much more options. And the practice that we do here also cultivates cultivates these um, attitudes and ways of looking that can bring us more happiness, you know, in the short term, and a lot more freedom in the long term. Yeah, they really build up on them. Qualities and attitudes like um, patience, <laughs> you know, one of the overlooked things that happens <laughs> on the cushion. You know, we actually we actually cultivate patience. And you know, if we think about the relationship between patience and happiness, how much of our unhappiness is because of of, of actually not enough of this quality. You know, so patience, generosity, equanimity. Meta, compassion, wisdom, courage, determination, so many, so many qualities and attitudes that are really, you know, really fundamental for our well-being, our happiness and, and our freedom. So all of this is happening through the practice. It's happening kind of already. <laughs> and then we have the option so it's already happening, but then we can also bring in intentionality. The knowing and the intention. You know, this is what's happening and this is also my intention. I want to nourish this. I want to nourish this. And it's like an added fuel. It's like an added fuel to the process. It really kind of heightens it. In Dharma teachings, um, there's quite a lot of um, 
emphasis on, on intention. And um, there's this thing we haven't mentioned called um, the Eightfold Path. It's, it's the, the path the Buddha described um, to, to awakening. And right intention is, um, or resolve, is one of, the, one of the parts of this path, one of the eight. And it's really important to, um, to understand what is meant, you know, because often, again, like with the emptiness, we hear a word and, and, and we would understand it a certain way, but actually what, what is this right intention or right resolve? It's also sometimes translated as. And it's the, the basic clarity, the basic understanding that um, leads us to act and to practice and to live in a in a wise in a wise way, and specifically, it's defined really really clearly defined in the texts as the intention and resolve to do three things, really clearly defined. So the intention and resolve to give up the causes of suffering. That's the first one. The intention and resolve to give up the causes of suffering. I like the second one is the intention and resolve to give up ill will. So obviously, whoever put this together thought that you know ill will really needed its own category because you know of course ill will is a cause of suffering, but it's not enough to put it in there. We have to really kind of highlight it and give it its own thing. So the intention and resolve to give up the causes of suffering and the intention and resolve to give up ill will. And then the third one is the intention and resolve to adopt harmlessness. To adopt harmlessness. It's really, really beautiful teaching. And in a way, kind of just holds the whole path right there. Yeah, right there. You know, we can really um, feel, you know, what would it mean for us, for our lives, if we actually, you know, really, really lived according to that? really, really lived according to that. You know, giving up the causes of suffering, giving up ill will, and adopting harmlessness. And I think we can really feel how deeply transformative that is. And also, um, how big a part it already is of us. You know, we wouldn't be here if we didn't on some level have that aspiration and intention. You know, none of us would be here. But again, the highlighting of it, the really kind of bringing it out. And so taking a moment to really feel how transformative this is and how transformative it would be for our world, you know, if, if more beings lived with that intention. So I want to give a, a little example of this transformative um, quality of this kind of intention. And uh, this is from a, a friend of ours, who some of you here know. And um, 
I, uh, I met him just over a year ago on a retreat I was teaching in Israel. And uh, at the end of that retreat, I spoke about some of the work we do in, in, um, in Palestine and the opportunity to, to come with us on, on the retreats we do there. And um, something in him, in that, in that moment, um, made a really, really clear commitment to come on that retreat. This was in, I think, in April, and the retreat in Palestine was in October, so six months, real, and a real commitment. Somewhere along that time, I don't remember when, he, he found out that the village, the Palestinian village, where uh, we hold the retreat, where we live and where we work with um, support Palestinian farmers to harvest their olives, that village was a village where he had um, spent three periods of time as an Israeli soldier in his, during his military service. So, complexity of difficulty of going to Palestine, no. Complexity and difficulty of going into Palestine as an Israeli, complexity of difficulty of going into Palestine as an Israeli who'd actually been in that specific village as a soldier three, three, different, period, three different times. And yet something in him stayed with that commitment and there was a lot of fear. There was also a lot of traumatic memories coming up. Um, I was talking to him just before the retreat and he told me how his wife said to him that, you know, in the, in the couple of weeks leading up, he, um, in the nights, he was having nightmares. He wasn't actually waking up, but she, she you know, could, could see him thrashing and kind of murmuring in his sleep. So a real, you know, a lot coming up, a lot coming up. And so many moments, you know, we, we spoke on the phone a couple of times in the weeks leading up and... Also, you know, while he was there, so many moments of the easy way being, no, not going to do this, not going to face these particular demons. And yet that determination, that commitment, that intention and resolve to let go of the causes of suffering, to let go of ill will, and to adopt harmlessness, you know, which sometimes, you know, not always, but sometimes it needs us to actually go through, to face those demons, to, to actually go through our past. So that real understanding of needing to face the fear, needing to face the fear and also not identifying with the history and the memories. History and the memories. Of course, this was just, you know, one aspect <laughs> of the person. Yeah, and of course so much there's so much wisdom and care and love in there. And so he came. Yeah, so he came on the retreat and he he was really there and he was really there in the process of, you know, being in a village. Um meeting people 
in the beginning feeling, you know, am I welcome? Are I welcome? You know? Do they really, you know, are they really friendly? <laughs> you know, are they really friendly? You know, questions. And then, you know, slowly, just five days, that changing, that changing, that shifting. So, so much courage. And the transformation happening, you know, both very fast and very slow. <laughs> it's like a different, different um, element of time. And with that kind of dissolving or disconnecting the parts, that the, the, the sticks that make up the fear, the sticks that make up the, that identification, transformation happening on many, many levels, you know, internally, that sense of being at ease with oneself, a sense of well-being, a sense of um, real integrity, sense of real integrity. Impact on others. You know, the impact on Palestinian friends in the village. Impact on other people in the group of, of that process happening within us. Impact on his family. You know, so many levels, so many ripples of that impact. And I just got an email from him very recently. Um, I, I already knew from him and from others that you know he he's he keeps he's been going to the to the village at least once a week since October. You know, at least once a week since October. And so that continuing process, you know, that intention flourishing and blossoming more deeply, you know, more um, widely, and the friendships growing, 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 friendship internally and friendship between people, and then that sense of inner integrity and well-being also growing, also growing, and so I hope this example makes sense. (laughs) To, to you, you know, just that, like, what is possible for us, you know, just ordinary human beings, you know, not, not the Dalai Lama, you know, he's also a real embodiment for us of what's possible, but, you know, just ordinary human beings, and what we can do with, with the practice, with the support of that deep intention, is the support of community around us. So really remembering, you know, in every moment there's countless causes and conditions that are at play. Yeah, countless causes and conditions, but some of them are at play in this mind and in this heart and this being. You know, and Jessica so beautifully asking last night about what, who's, you know, if there's no self, then who's, you know, who is it that decides? Who's making the choices? That's a real question to, to, to let resonate in us. Everything leans, 
including ourselves. There is no clear command center that we can locate or find anywhere in here. And yet, experience shows us, our own experience shows us, that we evolve, that we deepen, that we change. And that what we put our energy into has an impact on that. So through practice, you know, we deepen in our sensitivity to this kind of to these processes and we deepen in our capacity to deeply listen to ourselves and to these voices and to choose to choose what supports us to be truly aligned with our deepest aspirations and intentions And so this is really important to ourselves and to the world. It's so important to ourselves and to the world. That aligning with that intention to let go of the causes of suffering and to let go of ill will and to adopt harmlessness. And this can be a guiding light for us. You know, that intention, that aspiration. Not just here. Yeah? Not just here. But in our lives. You know, there can be this sense that the retreat ends tomorrow. Yeah, the retreat ends tomorrow. It's like a cut-off But when we reflect on what we've been seeing and experiencing over the days here, we, we can connect to a deeper understanding that conditions change, but nothing ends, and particularly not that deep wish to be in alignment with the wholesome and with the beneficial. So remembering that we need us to keep nourishing that momentum and the world needs us to keep nourishing that momentum and that every moment, every gesture can make a difference, do make a difference. Yeah, They flow into this network of conditions and causes. And they support this guiding light to become stronger and brighter. I support the goodness. So I want to end with just a short, short piece from this book that, as you can tell, I'm deeply inspired by at the moment. So this is from a part where um, <clears throat> the, the project that, um, 
that they're running with with the with the with the with the gang members. Um, the the news program sixty minutes come to do a a show on it. I know nothing. I, I've heard about sixty minutes, but I don't know anything about it. And so the reporter um, is filming them in a in a classroom. This is what he says. We're sitting in a classroom filled with gang members, all students in our Dolores Mission Alternative School. The reporter points at me and says, you won't turn these guys into the police. Like a statement, you won't turn these guys into the police. Which seems quite silly to me at the time. I say something lame, like, well, I didn't take my vows to the LAPD. But then the reporter turns to the homie, to one of the homies, to one of the gang members, and grills him on this, saying over and over, he won't turn you in, will he? He won't turn you in, will he? And then he asks the homie, why is that? Why do you think he won't turn you over to the police? The kid just stares at this journalist, shrugs, nonplussed, and says, God, I guess. God, I guess. This is a chapter on God, I guess. Truth be told, the whole book is, not much in my life makes any sense outside of God. Certainly, a place like Homeboy Industries is all folly and bad business, unless the core of the endeavor seeks to imitate the kind of God one ought to believe in. Yeah, the kind of God one ought to believe in. Not the kind of God we're told to believe in, not the kind of God we think is there. The kind of God we ought, one ought to believe in. In the end, I am helpless to explain why anyone would accompany those on the margins were it not for some anchored belief that the ground of all being thought this was a good idea. That the ground of all being thought this was a good idea. Supporting the good in all of us. Because that's the kind of God one ought to believe in. And when we rest into that, everything is possible. So let's have a a quiet moment together. (laughs) 